it's it's it makes me feel so awful. Like I'm telling you, I have sensory nightmares about it. Of dropping. Yes. Yes. All the time. All the time. Just like straight vertically? Yes. Or yes. like we're going down a hill. Like vertically. Like and a lot I have a recurring dream where I'm like literally falling from the sky or like off a cliff. Well, Expedition Everest doesn't drop vertically. <sighs> it might as well be. No, it doesn't. If I need someone to give me the degree measurement of the drop, okay? I'll and then we can f- talk I'll about it. I'll find it right effing now. I'm going to look this up. Let's see. 74 degrees. It's nothing. That's pretty bad. I've been on a roller coaster with more than a 90 degree drop where you go Well, that's up just stupid, and okay? Kind of like <laughs> That's a stupid thing to do, okay? That's just a stupid thing to do. <laughs> and welcome to a brand new episode of Poor Unfortunate Podcast. I'm Caroline Ametti. And I'm Connor Perkins. Welcome to any of our returning listeners. We love having you back with us. And if you're new here, welcome. Please take the time right now to hit follow or subscribe wherever you're listening. And then after the episode, if you liked what you heard, please remember to rate and review so that we can keep bringing more people into our poor unfortunate fold. Also, I just read one of our new reviews yesterday, and it's really nice to hear what parts of this you're really enjoying. So we read all of them, and we love hearing what you like. What's new, Caroline? Honestly, a lot of things. Um, there's been a lot going on. Busy, busy. Yeah. Um, first of all, I feel like what we obviously we knew in Disney World, we obviously knew that we were going to be getting Harmonious in Epcot. But they've been talking about the new Magic Kingdom fireworks for the anniversary starting October 1st. That will be called Disney Enchantment. And that will include projections onto all the buildings of Main Street, which Happily Ever After currently does not feature. So we've got a new fireworks show to look forward to. And there's a new, I forget the name, but there's going to be a new daytime show premiering in Animal Kingdom as well. Oh, yeah, with the with the kites. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I feel like they're never really, quite really sure cool. what to do with the shows in Animal Kingdom. They haven't no, nailed the, it yet. No, but the kites from the concept art look, they look pretty nice. fun. I'm like, yeah. kites are kites are a good good little thing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, fun. yeah. Rivers of Light was good, but it wasn't amazing. They just haven't hit it yet. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to the day that they do. Other things happening in Disney. As of today, when we were recording this, we're recording the day that Black Widow finally comes out in theaters and on Disney Plus Premiere Access. So for all the Marvel fans, all the ScarJo fans, it's finally happening. The movie Mm -hmm. that we've been waiting for since like the first Avengers movie is finally Mm -hmm. freaking here. So that's exciting. Yeah, Loki, the final episode comes out next Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So this coming Wednesday, if you're listening to this when it premieres, I want to say right now, because I haven't really talked a whole lot about Loki. Mm -hmm. If you have not watched Loki, 
you need to watch Loki. It is absolutely amazing. The acting, the storytelling, the concept, it's incredible. We've got a female creator, again, much like WandaVision. Gotta support these things. Plus, Loki, the things that happen within it are going to be, I think, very key for setting up Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. That's I think what I heard. Mm-hmm. Loki and WandaVision are going to be setting that up. Okay. So if you are not watching Loki, which I feel like a lot of people are, yeah. you should put it on your list because it's it's pretty dang good. Behind the Attraction is coming as well to Disney+. Plus. I'm so excited for that. Oh, yes. I, I check yeah. back every day and then I'm like, is, it, is today the day? But it's, it's not. I just need to be patient. Monsters at Work is out. We didn't talk about Luca. We didn't. Well, we said that Luca was coming out. I haven't watched Luca still. <gasps> okay. Oh my god, I need to talk to you about it. I'm probably gonna watch it tonight. Please. Tell, okay. 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 I really need to talk to you about Luca. So yes, let me know. One other thing that I have to mention, it's a little piece of Disney news, but it's again. So some of the things that were in the 2021, a later gassy things that we're most excited for in 2021, another one of my things came true. <laughs> But it was kind of wrong. So, you know, (laughs) WDW News Today, their blog. So they were covering the change from Citricos in the Grand Floridian Resort to Victoria and Albert's Bistro. So, you know, I don't know if it shifted or if they just had their news wrong. Maybe a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. But the change has happened to Citricos. And it is now Mary Poppins themed. Mm, and Mary Poppins themed taking the same sort of edge as I predicted from the Enchanted Rose Lounge, mm-hmm. where it's sort of like a modern twist with like this influence coming in and, a, yeah. and it looks beautiful. So Aimed uh, at people our age, which is always the right move. <laughs> yeah. So I'm real excited that I keep checking things off of my 2021 mm-hmm. list. For real. In terms of my list, I'm thinking... We got we got a couple of paparazzi snuck shots from the set of The Little Mermaid in Italy. Um, so they oh, got yeah. some with, shots of a scene with Noma that, and with Noma in. Oh my gosh, with that white gown. Oh yeah, yeah. like oh, and the mermaids like laying on the rocks. Uh, yeah. I'm so excited. Also, for those of you who listened maybe two episodes ago or so, we talked about we didn't have much information then about the Disney mini golf coming to. New York City, but it is confirmed August 1st, Pixar Putt is opening in Battery Park City at Pier A. We are going to be going. You heard it here first, folks. Remember that. We had (laughs) that news. So you can find them on Instagram, Pixar Putt, if you want some previews about what that's going to look like. We're so excited. So I guess that's it. And we will dive into the main content of the episode. Mm -hmm. So this is our showdown episode of this rotation. And a couple episodes back, we talked a little bit about Cruella in our news uh, section. And we Mm -hmm. said that we were going to talk about this movie sometime in the future. And I had said, if you're a betting person, you might want to bet on a showdown episode. (laughs) You did. Well, here it is. We're going to (laughs) be talking about Cruella today. We are going to be taking two movies putting them up against each other and seeing which one comes out on top. And our theme this week are villain origin stories, Mm -hmm. thingamajigs. Yes, yes. So on one side, we have Cruella. And on the other side, we have Maleficent. Sure do. Sure do. 
If you have not watched either of these movies, they are a little bit more difficult to watch. They're not quite Mm -hmm. as accessible. Mm -hmm. Maleficent was on Disney Plus for a brief while, and then it got taken off again. It's been playing on sci-fi or freeform like all this week. Um, So my suspicion is probably after it finishes playing out on TV, they'll put it back. But you can rent it anywhere. It's it's like $3. Mm -hmm. You know, you can get that. Mm-hmm. And Cruella, you can only see this in theaters or through Disney Plus Premier Access for $30. Again, I'm was skeptical of Disney Plus Premier Access at the beginning. I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. And I have actually come around to really, really loving it. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, you get to watch it as much as right. you want. So living in New York City, a movie ticket is around $15. I've watched Cruella three times. So I've already more than made up for what it would have cost me to see this in theaters. So, And it's coming out for rental, I believe, in September. And a lot of times that's like 20 bucks already. And you don't get to keep it. It runs out. So I think it's worth it. I agree. So if you haven't seen Cruella, I think this is one that you'd want to spend some money for the premiere access for. And then if you haven't seen Maleficent, I think it's worth like a $3 rental on Amazon or Vudu or wherever or Google Play, Mm -hmm. wherever you might find it. And then you can watch Mistress of Evil on Disney Plus if you want to see. Yeah, Mistress of Evil is on Disney Plus. But obviously there will be some spoilers ahead to both of those movies. So if you haven't watched either of them, now is the time where you can pause the podcast and watch them. And then we will wait for you to return. We'll be here when you get back. And welcome back. <laughs> there it is. All right, Caroline. <laughs> <laughs> Diving in. So I did some background information on Maleficent and Caroline did some on Cruella. So we'll give you both of those. And then we will sort of bounce back and forth between the two looking at their strengths and weaknesses through the lens of design, performances, and the quality of their origin stories. Mm-hmm. All righty. So Maleficent. Maleficent was released on May 30th, 2014, and it premiered two days earlier on May 28th, 2014 in California. The producer was Joe Roth, who did the Alice in Wonderland remakes, Oz the Great and Powerful, In the Heart of the Sea, and is producing the upcoming Peter Pan and Wendy live action film that we talked about last mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. It is directed by Robert Stromberg, and this is his directorial debut, and he is best known working as a special effects artist and production designer on films like Alice in Wonderland, (laughs) Oz the Great and Powerful, and also James Cameron's Avatar. Oh. He's also the production designer for the upcoming Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Hmm. The screenplay is by our gal, Linda Wolverton. Linda. Worked on the animated film version of Beauty and the Beast, part of that story team. She also did the book for Beauty and the Beast on Broadway. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was on the animated Lion King. And she wrote the screenplay for the live action remake of Alice in Wonderland. There's a theme. (laughs) Uh (laughs) These people all know each other and they like working with one another. The movie is based on Sleeping Beauty and Charles Perrault's fairy tale, I I can't do French. (laughs) Sleeping Beauty. (laughs) And the music is by James Newton Howard, who did Raya and the Last Dragon, is doing Jungle Cruise, 
did the Hunger Games, worked with Hans Zimmer on The Dark Knight, Pretty Woman, all of it. Mm. And then the cinematographer was Dean Semler, who did Dances with Wolves and won an Oscar for it. Hmm, so There you go. It's an interesting crew here. It is, yeah. Maleficent stars Angelina Jolie as Maleficent. Who? Elle Fanning as, I know, right? <laughs> is this movie about her? Who? <laughs> Elle Fanning as Aurora. Sam Riley as Diaval. Charlotte Copley as Stefan. Imelda Staunton, a.k.a. Professor Umbridge. Forever as and always. Leslie Manville as Flittle and Juno Temple as Thistlewit. The budget for this movie was approximately $180 million, and the box office was $758.8 <gasps> million. Wow. It's quite successful. Wow. It is followed by a direct sequel, Maleficent, Mistress of Evil, in 2019, with many of the original cast and mm-hmm. the creatives returning to it. So mm. there will be some consistency. Mm-hmm. And that's on Disney Plus, as we mentioned before. Yeah. It received a 54% tomato meter score on Rotten Tomatoes, but it received a 70% audience score on Rotten mm, Tomatoes. Okay. Okay. Interesting to note. Yeah. In terms of reception, it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Achievement in Costume Design. And the critical response to the film was fairly mixed, but erring on the positive side, mostly due to Angelina Jolie's performance Mm -hmm, as the title mm -hmm, character. mm -hmm. The Rotten Tomatoes critical consensus of the film is, quote, Angelina Jolie's magnetic performance outshines Maleficent's dazzling special effects. Unfortunately, the movie around them fails to justify all that impressive effort. The New York Times, however, outrightly praised how Maleficent, quote, demolishes stereotypes that were only tweaked in Frozen. So okay. it's very interesting. Okay. I couldn't I couldn't help not bringing this into the conversation because it's a movie that I think even to this day people are conflicted about. Mm-hmm. Even myself. Um, yeah, I'm just going to say this going into it. Yeah. The plot synopsis for Maleficent. Do it. Do it. I have prepared one for you all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here it comes. Maleficent is an origin story slash adaptation slash retelling of the famous fairy tale Sleeping Beauty that finally answers the age-old question, what would cause a fairy to curse a baby to die before she can legally drive? Mm. The ultra-winged fairy Maleficent is the guardian of the Moors, the magical counterpart to the man-made kingdom next door and target of countless attacks because humans always want what they can't have. When she befriends a young farm boy named Stefan and the two fall in love, everything seems right with the world, and she's thinking that perhaps the two kingdoms could finally come together as one. Wrong. Stefan is a power-hungry fuckboy willing to do anything to become king, even drug his on-again, off-again girlfriend, chop off her wings to avenge the dying king who had a little tiff with Mal, and shack up with some rando. Mm. So when Maleficent wakes up, She's ready for some payback, and girl woke up on pay fucking day. Mm-hmm. Witness Angelina Jolie as everybody's fave Disney villain serve up a performance that just isn't fair, cheekbones that would cut you in half, and the sexiest pair of horns since the beast hashtag stepped into the light. Yes. And that's Maleficent. <laughs> All right. Kay. Tell us a little bit about Cruella, Caroline. All right, Cruella. 
So Cruella was released on May 28th, 2021, simultaneously in theaters and on Disney Plus through Premiere Access. It is based on the Disney film 101 Dalmatians, both the animated and a bit of the live-action remake, as well as The 101 Dalmatians by Jodie Smith. The director is Craig Gillespie of Lars and the Real Girl and I, Tanya fame. I, Tanya. Mm-hmm. Screenplay by Dana Fox and Tony McNamara. You might know Tony from The Favorite and The Great. The Great is one of my favorite TV shows right now. So good. Which stars Elle um, Fanning. Yes. Oh, my God. I love me some Elle. Um, the producers are Andrew Gunn of Freaky Friday and Haunted Mansion, which we've talked about on here before. Mixed feelings. Um, mm-hmm. Mark Platt, who has worked on so many things, um, know a little show called Wicked, know a little movie <laughs> called La La Land. And he's also a producer on the upcoming live action Little Mermaid and live action Snow White, which we, again, just got some casting for. Mm-hmm. Amazing. That's also some good news. Um, and Kristen Burr, who was one of the producers of Christopher Robin, which I loved. Um, the story is by Aline Brosh McKenna, who did The Devil Wears Prada, makes a lot of sense, um, and Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, uh, and Kelly Marcel, who did Saving Mr. Banks and Fifty Shades of Grey, interesting, what a combo. <laughs> and Steve Zissis. The costumes, which we must mention, are by Jenny Baven, who did Christopher Robin, some of the newer Sherlock Holmes, and the costumes for Nutcracker and the Four Realms. Uh, the music is by Nicholas Brattel, who did music for a Succession, which is a super iconic, you know, intro song, and the mm-hmm. music for If Beale Street Could Talk. And the cinematography is by Nicholas Karakatsanis. The budget was $100 million, and the box office so far is a $205 million. The runtime is 134 minutes. Right now, it's got a 97% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. And a 7.4 on IMDb, which I thought was interesting. I think it deserves a little higher. The IMDb people are mostly just like haters. Yeah, okay. That explains it. This stars Emma Stone as Cruella slash Estella, Emma Thompson as Baroness Von Hellman, Joel Fry as Jasper, Paul Walter Hauser as Horace, and I want to shout out Tipper Seifert Cleveland as 12-year-old Estella. She does an amazing job. Mark Strong as John, John McRae as Artie. Kirby Howell Baptiste as Anita and Kevin Novak as Roger. Yes, truly. Um, Emma Stone and Glenn Close were two of the four executive producers on this movie, and a sequel is already in the works. The critical reception for this film was quite positive, with kudos all around for the performances from Stone and Thompson, as well as the overall style and design of the film, especially the costumes and the soundtrack. The New York Times called it refreshing, and famous film critic Richard Roper called Stone wildly entertaining and the film a visual feast. And I concur. Quick little plot synopsis. So, Estella is a clever and gifted, albeit a little rough around the edges, girl who eventually becomes an orphan and teams up with fellow drifters Jasper and Horace to survive. Estella feels responsible for the death of her mother and desperately wants to fulfill her dreams of becoming a successful fashion designer to make her late mother proud. After impressing the iconic Baroness von Hellman with her outlandish eye for design, special shout out to Whiskey, thank you for the inspo, Estella finds herself at the center of the London fashion world. But all is not as it seems. How do a necklace, three Dalmatians, and a DeVille car birth Estella's alter ego Cruella and rocket her onto a path of revenge and fashion stardom? You'll just have to watch to find out. Oh, you will. 
You will. We're, <laughs> we're doing. We're going with spoilers. So yeah, yeah. Just again, one more warning: there will be spoilers. All right. So we're going to now dive into both of these films through the perspective of their performances, their design, and the quality of the origin story, both positives mm-hmm. and negatives. So we're going to start looking at the performances of both of these films. So let's begin with Maleficent, shall mm-hmm. we? We shall. In terms of positives, strengths of Maleficent, mm-hmm. honestly, Angelina Jolie carries this film on her back. Mm-hmm. Her choices, yeah. her voice work, it's fantastic and grounded while also being very heightened. As mm-hmm. we usually praise, she bought into the world of this story, heart and soul. Nothing is half-assed, and she is, it's always fully believed by her. Mm-hmm. The scene where she wakes to discover that her wings are gone <gasps> yes. is perfectly acted. Yeah, it's hard to and watch. Just, yeah. It's such an emotional journey of a breakdown scene alone. Mm-hmm. Matt Zoller Seitz, who writes for Roger Ebert's website, called that scene, quote, the most traumatizing image I've seen in a Hollywood fairy tale since the Christ-like sacrifice of Aslan in 2005's mm. The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, wow. the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yeah. But even besides her ability to play the deep complexities of every scene and every moment, I think her comedic moments cut mm-hmm. through so beautifully. They're mm-hmm. very full. They're very honest. And I think she gives a truly brilliant performance for a film that I think most actors would not go that hard for. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. Yeah, I agree. I have Elle Fanning under a positive of the performances because I think her being cast as Aurora was a good move. I don't think she had as much to do in this movie, but I think what she had to do, yeah. I really enjoyed. Yeah. So let's talk about the great performances that we have going on in Cruella. Yes. All right. I honestly think that all of the performances in this film are phenomenal. I agree. But I want to give a special shout out to the child actors who open the film. I think sometimes child actors can be a little bit difficult to get right in terms of like the level of precociousness. And I think these actors especially were so important for establishing the emotional core of this story. And they absolutely nailed it. Um, Young Estella was amazing, but I also was really touched by young Jasper. So Emma Stone's performance. I think her entire performance is incredible. I think what she is doing is perfectly distilled in her monologue at the fountain once she finds out the truth of everything going on with the Baroness. That her performance in general and the delivery of this monologue toes the perfect line of camp, perfect Disney villainy, and then just pure emotional drama and honesty. When I watched it the first time and when I rewatched it, I honestly don't know how she did what she did. There's just so much going on in her eyes, in the level of performance she is giving. I really hope she gets an Oscar nomination. And this performance is exactly what I dream of from a villain origin story, which is capital A acting, small nods to the cartoon, perfection. Like, even when you think about the posture that she takes on when she's driving the car. Yeah. It's those little nods to the animated film that are just the perfect amount. And then the rest of it is just straight up good ass acting yeah i think what's most interesting about her in this role is the war between her two characters of estella and Mm -hmm. cruella it -hmm. gets her performance really really nuanced especially in scenes 
where you can see the one personality sort of like breaking through into the other mm-hmm. scene. For example, yeah. when Horace and Jasper are tied up in the apartment and Cruella is facing off with the Baroness, Estella mm-hmm. like breaks through in that moment and she says the this is between us and asks her to let Horace and Jasper go. Yeah. But then and quickly she's like, Even though they're imbeciles. To, like, yeah, yeah, imbeciles that they are, then goes right back to Cruella. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that is very well acted and very cleverly written. And I, I that was just like one moment where I was like, there's some really, really good work that is happening here that I think in most live action remakes where you can lean so much on the original story or in an origin story when you're leaning on the original property, you might not necessarily do, and Mm -hmm. they're doing it here. And Emma Stone is putting in the work for this. And I honestly, and we'll we'll touch on this a bit more when we talk about the value of the origin story, but wherever they decide to go with how evil Cruella is going to get, I think Emma Stone set that up as a possibility, or maybe we won't go that far. I think exactly. there's options for both, and I exactly. think that's her really performance brilliant. is like so explosive at times, mm-hmm. where like you can yeah. see like she could do anything at any time, which is yes. exactly what Cruella needs. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And then Emma Thompson. I mean, it goes without saying that this performance is incredible, but I think what's really cool about it is that it so easily could have fallen into the stereotypical Miranda Priestly type performance that honestly, like any actor could probably do, not as well as Meryl, of course, but it just didn't. It, this performance was so incredibly idiosyncratic. I'm thinking about the specific moment when she and Estella are in the restaurant, like having lunch. The olive? And the way that she ate the olive and the then olive. tossed the toothpick onto the table was so specific. Whether or not you have the killer instinct, that's the oh. big question. <laughs> yes. Oh my God, it's so good. And then she tosses it. And then and then I even think about, and I don't know if she thought this through, but it's Emma, so I'm going to assume she did. The way that she moves her mouth in this movie yes. reminds me of the cartoon Cruella. And I think that is so, okay, because here we go. We're going to start doing the spoilers. She's her mom. So that yeah. would make sense. And I, the way she moves her mouth looks just like the cartoon. And I just like it like, so like brilliant. kind of droops on the one it side. It droops and then it's sort of flat and straight in other moments. I don't even know how to yeah. describe it, but it's 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 brilliant. It's yeah, brilliant. it's it's incredible. I oh my God. I mean, I'm gonna be in love with her for the end of time, but the moment that I was like, I do is when she throws her lunch out the window. Yes. When she's yes, finished, when she's so finished good. with it, she just throws it out the window. The yeah. speed at which she's able to do it yeah. so that it yeah. is that funny mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. like shocking yeah. all at the same time. Exactly. That's pure Emma. Yeah. 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 This is the I mean, woman who broke down for us in love actually to <sighs> both sides now. Both like, sides now. She will f- always give it to us. I mean, I'm every single one of these I could of these performances, I could take a moment. We don't have that much time, so quickly Joel Fry touched me so much as Jasper and the fact that he's clearly like in love with Estella broke my heart every time he's trying to get her to come back to reality and he's like I miss the old you beautiful but he still was Jasper from the cartoon yeah it was just again perfect balance and then seeing Mark Strong who I think is one of the most brilliant actors actually ever on the planet Take on the supporting role with so much grace was amazing. And then getting John McRae as Artie, it's just, it was, it's, he's a treasure. 
And I just loved every bit of casting in this film. I really did. Yeah. Well, I have to very quickly talk about Paul Walter Hauser because I do it. Yes. I knew you would. I left that to you. Yeah. I love this man so much. He steals every single scene that he is in. He's so funny. He's He's just so brilliant. But I also want to call out really quickly, even the minor and the background characters. Yeah. Like the department store manager who is like all teeth and like, I'm like choices for days. I love that actor and other things too. He's just a brilliant actor. Now hopping back to the performances in Maleficent, let's talk about some of the places where... Things weren't working. Yeah. I think that's the best way that I can describe this. The fairies are just a mess. Oh, don't even. I can't wait to unleash about this. And I don't think that this largely falls on the fault of any of the actors. These three actresses are are incredible actresses. So it's just really insulting that they did this to them. Yeah. I think it's rather the scripting of their characters. Yes. And I think more specific direction could have helped this. So I think this really comes down on some of the creatives Mm -hmm. and the fact that it's a directorial debut for someone who is Mm -hmm. largely a visual effects person and a production designer. Mm -hmm. I think he sort of trusted a lot of these really, really good actors to just sort of like do their own thing. Yep. Yep. Which they are all brilliant actors. Everyone in this movie is a brilliant actor. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that an actor doesn't need direction. Yeah. Because I couldn't really tell the difference between a lot of these fairies. Yeah. What their personalities were. Where in the original film, Flora, Fauna, and Meriwether have very, very distinct personalities from one another. Mm -hmm. And I was expecting that in this movie. And... It didn't happen. The CGI of the fairies is, I think, directly linked to their performance because as a computer, you're now deciding how these characters behave. They're being Mm -hmm. animated, but they never feel like they're being approached with, like, the sensitivity of an animator over at Walt Disney Animation Studios would have. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then when the fairies are in human form, the acting is so much better. Because the actors are getting to make their own choices. It's not a computer or someone else in a booth Mm -hmm. in Mm post-production making Mm -hmm. their choices for them. I'm Mm -hmm. like, I don't know how you found a way to ruin an Imelda Staunton performance. And Leslie and Juno. I love them. What the hell? Like, if you're going to do the digital work, you might as well just do the digital work to shrink them. That's what I'm saying. Or I was like, just just fully animate them because the superimposed faces were just just terrible. They they weren't even like superimposed. They were like, it was the kind Uh, of like Polar Express sort of thing where it was like ultra realistic. And did but not, it's animated. No. It was it was strange, and it no. created this sort of like uncanny valley situation. Wa- <gasps> Wait, did you truly just say that? Because I have that in my notes. It was the fairies are fully uncanny valley. Oh <laughs> I just said my that. god! I didn't have it written down. It just sort of like I just. Oh, said I it. have it written down. Uncanny valley, and I'm like, I wonder if Connor's going to know what I mean by this. Oh my oh, god! Oh no, I know exactly what that you mean. video. <laughs> that's exactly what they are. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, thank you. But then, okay, my next, the next performance that I think is. Oh, no. Elle Fanning. I just think her Aurora is largely forgettable, which to me is unusual for Elle Fanning because Mm -hmm. she is so talented and I really like her. And she's, she's usually the highlight of the thing that Mm -hmm. I see her in. I don't think there are really any moments in the film that stick out as exceptional for her. And I think that's part of the reason why I think she's forgettable is because there aren't any moments really built for her to make any sort of like big, bold choice about the character. People don't know how to give this character any agency 
Aurora is largely a prop in every movie to tell the story of other characters. And mm-hmm. so I don't think that anything substantial was really added to her character in this movie. Is she mm-hmm. just generally happy and is deeply curious? And that's yeah. that's really what I get from this Aurora. And the other thing is Elle Fanning has this grit and bite mm-hmm. about her that sort of naturally comes into every role and makes things really, really interesting. So if they were doing a rougher Aurora a la Snow White and the Huntsman sort of situation. Yeah, would have been that would make sense to me. That would be Mm -hmm. really interesting. But they were just sort of straddling two different Auroras without committing Mm -hmm. to either one. Like they kind of wanted to do the graceful Aurora, but they also wanted to do the sort of like Snow White and the Huntsman Aurora, Mm -hmm. but they didn't pick one. And I'm like, you can't Uh do both because they're at odds. Either you're going to do one that's evocative of the original movie, or you're going to do one that's like very different to sort of maybe – Modern. color the character yeah. a different way and so i that's why i think her performance just sort of fell for me yeah. isn't really any of the choices that she was making but rather that she was given a character that didn't allow her to make any choices yeah uh-huh let's talk about some of the weaknesses in the cruella performances i hate to be so so annoying but i don't have any <laughs> I know. I I only have one thing written, and okay. it's just kind of – mine is only when you do a direct comparison, as we are doing, of Emma Stone to Angelina Jolie. Uh-huh, which I truly – I think I have a note later in this that I'm like, I truly – this is my least favorite thing to do. But that's the game that we're playing right now, so yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So I have – you know, I love Emma Stone in this part, and I think comparing her performance directly to Angelina Jolie's is really difficult, and – kind of unfair because they have very different tasks ahead of them and mm-hmm. they both they both did them yeah. like they achieved and if not went beyond i do think in just sort of like outright villainy angelina gets to a deeper place than emma does when she's doing like really? villainy i do think so wow okay but i think emma stone as i said before she nails the explosive personality of Cruella where she could do anything at any minute. So honestly, this is just me to say Emma Stone's performance is brilliant. Angelina Jolie's performance is brilliant. I think if I had to compare them directly, I'm more impressed with Angelina's performance. Oh my God. Okay. Wow. But I think that also it may have to do with her performance against the backdrop of the film and the script that she was given. Interesting. Versus... Emma finding that against the backdrop of the film and the script that she was given. Okay. Because for me, I know this might sound surprising. I could imagine maybe some other actresses playing Maleficent. I think Angelina was absolutely amazing. But I'm like, oh, I'd be interested to see these people try it. Where with Cruella, I was like, it has to be Emma for me. See, I'm the same way with both of them. I I Mm, think it has to be Emma Stone Mm -hmm. for this young Cruella part. But when I saw... Angelina Jolie as Maleficent the first time, I was like, there is no one else. Like, oh, okay. there is no one else who can do this. There's no one else who looks this way. And when they announced that Angelina she does look amazing. She looks am- she looks I'm like, perfect. Yeah. It's perfection. I mean, I just, oh my God. Like, just some, it's, it's the moments, even when she's just sort of like sitting in silence, when yeah. she's like in the Forbidden Fortress, like Forbidden Mountain Castle. Yeah. And she's yeah. just sort of like sitting there alone. Hmm. There's just more weight to her role huh. that she deals right. with. 
that I don't think Cruella has to true, deal with. True, that's the true, true. I don't doubt that Emma Stone could go there. But I feel like to get to the place where Angelina went with that role is far and above the task that she was given. Intr- and okay. that gets a lot of points for me. Okay. All right. So that's our performances. I think coming out of that, Cruella really sort of has it on the performances. Yeah, I would agree. Maleficent. I would Not agree. through any other performance faults, but. No. Just what they were offered to work with. Yeah. 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 It's too much, too much muddy over in yeah. Maleficent world. Mm-hmm. So now let's talk about some design, shall we? Mm-hmm. Yes. All righty. So with Maleficent, first thing I want to talk about is the scenic and production design, because I think that they really shine in this film and it makes sense based on who our director is. So I think the use of the real sets, practical sets, blended with the blue screen CGI enhancements and backgrounds make every single location as fantastic as they may be, feel grounded in some sort of sense of reality within a fantasy story. So like the Moors, they have the potential of being just one big CGI mess. And when we aren't doing a heavy action scene, I don't think that they are a CGI mess. Because we have real water for Aurora to splash and throw mud in, real grasses, real trees for the actors to interact with. And it makes me th- it makes me think a lot of Alice in Wonderland, to be honest, when I was watching this. That makes sense. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. in Alice in Wonderland, nearly everything was blue or green screen. And it started to irritate me after a little while. I do enjoy that movie, but I'm just like, is nothing real here? Like mm-hmm. everything is CGI. And I was really happy to see a live action Disney film where there was real stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that the production design is is beautiful, especially in the castle. The commitment to the medieval art and stylings in the way that the animated film went, it they just they carried it with the same importance that the animated film did. And I think the payoffs are beautiful. Aurora's bedchamber is exquisite. Caroline, do you not you don't you hey. do not feel in it? It's just Caroline. funny. I I said the opposite. <laughs> you said the a complete opposite. Great. This is going to be real interesting. Um, I think that the costuming, hair, and makeup, I think they did really well in this movie as well. Um, <laughs> you sound so nervous. <laughs> I'm so nervous because I feel well. like... I feel like you're right. His shit all over everything. I no, think no. For Maleficent in particular... Yes. I think it's very difficult to take an iconic character that we only yeah. ever see in one costume and mm-hmm. make different looks that feel different from each other, but also of and for the character. Like, yeah. they all feel similar but distinct from one another. And mm-hmm. they all I agree feel with of the original character, which mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think is amazing. The textured head wraps, the robes, the dresses – I think, honestly, even the jumpsuit sort of situation that she has at the end, which you're rolling your eyes about, but that, to me, made a little bit of sense because it wasn't like she, like, rolled up wearing the jumpsuit. The jumpsuit situation was underneath the robes that she was wearing. All right. All right. So I was like, I get it. Would you really expect to see Maleficent doing any sort of, like, action sequence in uh, a dress? (sighs) I don't I was know. so bothered by the Catwoman suit. Oh, God. Uh, it was, ruined I that was, battle for me. Oh, my God. I was okay with it. All right. It just like that moment for me felt like the moment. 
honestly, no lie, in like Frozen on Broadway, it felt like this too, where it's like to show she is strong, we're putting her in pants. And I'm like, but but it's medieval. It's still, and we were really trying to ground ourselves in the medieval. So please don't, I get that she's of another world, but stop putting her in the Catwoman cat suit, okay? I get it. I get it. That's a that's a fair <laughs> critique. I was okay. It just because it distracted jumpsuit. me. It actually distracted me from what was going on. That's the problem. <laughs> like, but then in terms of makeup, I think the horns and the cheekbones, amazing. prosthetics, yeah, beautiful, are perfect. I don't know how they mastered the look of yeah. Maleficent's face from the animated film, but they found yeah. it. Like they, they found I the agree. angles that made yeah. Angelina feel like Maleficent, but also her own thing it was i thought that was fantastic yeah i think the details they continue through all the characters even down to the queen who is literally in one scene and has a stunningly period costume and i just want to buy everything that she's wearing costume all i want that costume yeah i agree with and i know you're gonna get you are like why isn't that what maleficent's wearing as she's crashing through the window (laughs) listen i know it would be ah I get what you're saying too. All right, I do. Um, honestly, that I, I for some reason the queen's costume really caught my eye as well. I thought it was beautiful and so medieval and amazing. The main thing for me that I really enjoyed design wise was I loved the moors at night. Yeah, I thought like the phosphorescence thing we had going on was beautiful and really. To me, when I looked at that, I was like, yeah, like this is the world that Maleficent comes from. Um, the CGI balance for me. Oof, uh, sorry, I'm going into the cons, so let me just stop. <laughs> okay. Well, no, I get that. You, I respect your thing about the CGI CGI balance because I have that in there too. Scenic wise, I appreciate the CGI balance of just like the sets in general. But in terms of visual effects, I have I'm a little bit split. I do have that based on who's helming the film, based on someone who worked on freaking Avatar. Mm-hmm. I think there are a lot of visual effects that do hold up and are still beautiful. For example, anytime Maleficent performs magic, yeah, like anytime like that, that you see her like do like the little like gold wispies, the green fiery smoke mm-hmm, magic, the they all really work. The slow motion floating of Aurora and stuff like that. <gasps> Loved that. That, was, that done, was really beautiful. And that's done with a practical effect. They literally okay. had... L fanning on wires, mm. flew her backwards and put a fan under her and just did it all in real time. It looked so good. It looked and then so they good. just slowed it all down. Mm. But I also think that Maleficent's wings are exceptionally well done. I'm sure that they were probably very difficult yeah. to add in and animate because they're not in any of the scenes. They're not practical. Mm-hmm. But they're a character of their own, and I think that comes across really clearly in the design. When they are stuck in the glass case and trying to break out, that's a really amazing moment. Yeah. Yeah. And the scene where Maleficent flies above the clouds as we're introduced to the adult Maleficent, I think that scene is breathtaking. I think that's one of my favorite scenes of the entire movie when she's just like mm-hmm. up above the clouds just sort of like soaking in the sun and like smelling Mm -hmm. the air it's beautiful Mm -hmm. um and then the last thing i want to do is talk about the concept of diaval who's the raven i like that it's a call that we have a callback to diablo from the original Mm -hmm. film and i was very intrigued about this sort of like concept of him being transformed into other characters by maleficent depending upon what she needs I think Mm -hmm. it's a smart storytelling tool and it's brought to another way, I think, with the way that the creatures are designed. 
because each of the creatures that we see him as the raven, human, horse, dragon, and wolf, we see the the raven-esque qualities in all of the designs. In the horse, I, for sure, yes. And I think it's, I mean, even in the in the dragon, when you look at it, like, yeah. you can see the sort of, like, the uh-huh. sort of almost mane-like thing looks yeah. like feathers. Yeah. And I just think that that's really, really cool that yeah. they spent the time to really design all of these different things that still link back to, in his essence, he is always a raven, though. Mm-hmm. And that's what I've got about design from Maleficent. Okay, great. Let's go to the great parts of the design of Cruella. Um, obviously, we have to begin with design in Cruella with the costumes. Similarly to what you really loved about Maleficent's costuming, I also felt like Cruella's looks felt close enough to the animated film, but still original and fun enough to hold my interest and make me wonder what she was going to wear next. And honestly, make me want to wear them for Halloween. We know that everybody's going to be some version of modernized Cruella for Halloween. I'm really excited to see it. It's interesting you say that because as Cruella, we really only see her in like two outfits. Yeah, but I... We see her in her like her fur with the black cocktail dress. And -hmm. then we also see her in her bedroom with her curlers in. But no, I agree with you. A A lot of her dresses feel like a variation on the black cocktail dress of like the early 1900s yeah. set in the 70s with punk influence. Yeah, and you're and at first you're like, okay, Cruella has to pretty much wear the black and white. What are you going to do with that? And I feel like so much was done with it. And it was so yeah. creative. Um, and every bit of clothing in this was gorgeous and of the period, but also had a fantastical punk element to it that just like set up this very specific world for me. Perfectly. Um, it's the same thing. I feel like this about the overall look of the film and the costumes. Everything felt very of the time period in London with a Disney twist that I can't I can't quite put my finger on what makes it feel Disney to me, but it still feels Disney. And like the performances towed the perfect line between realistic and very period while also being camp and fun and punk. Um, and honestly, in so many of these settings, like even the Baroness's workroom, I just wanted to be in there. I want yeah. to be in so many of these. Like, just take me there, build it for me. I want to be in it. And I think um, the music was such a huge part of this. Um, from the composed pieces to the soundtrack of actually period music, it's amazing. And in my first watch of the film, for a second, I was like, oh, this this period music is a little bit jarring for me. It's it's too much. But then when I rewatched, I was like, no, no, it's perfect. It solidifies this film even further as a freestanding, just like good ass movie, all Disney connections aside. And I yeah. think that's overall what the huge win of this film is in general, is it can stand alone. And um, also, I really enjoy the Call Me Cruella in the credits. I also think it's a really good song. So I just wanted to shout that out because, you know, both of these films have a pop artist taking on some sort of song that is related to the villain. And I think both of them do a good job in that. The Um, fact that we have a Lana Del Rey cover of Once Upon a Dream, like I will thank the gods for Maleficent every single day, as crazy and weird and, you know, not great as she may be like that that cover is is solid i have a lot to say about the design of cruella because i think this is what sort of has elevated the new standard for a disney villain movie or a disney origin story or for that matter even a disney live action remake 
London in the 70s at the height of fashion and emerging punk rock influences, I think is the perfect, it's a prime inflection point to serve as the backdrop of the story. Because that's not where the time period of the original movie or the original book, they changed it. And I think it was really, really right. Because the hyper-stylization of the movie is embracing the camp that, as you said, is so iconic to Cruella as a character. She's larger than life and so over the top. And the movie can be that as well. You were talking about the soundtrack. I think the soundtrack is is its very own character in the story. It's constantly grounding us in Cruella's point of view against the backdrop of London that is at odds with these differing trends. You've got this music that is this pumping punk rock brain that is in Cruella against this tour of the department store for the Mm -hmm. first time. And it's Mm -hmm. beautiful because it's, it's showing us this is Cruella and this is the world that she's in, Mm -hmm. which kind of leads me into this next thing, which I think one of my most favorite things about the movie is the cinematography. The -hmm. cinematography is another way of us taking the side of Cruella, whether we want to or not, because Mm -hmm. the camera is moving in the same way and looking at things the same way that Cruella sees them. It twists through things. You have tracking shots. They flip upside down. There's fast zooms. There's handhelds that mirror the sort of unsteadiness and rougher world that then become wider and grander shots as her vision grows and she expands to working with the Baroness. So the Mm -hmm. story is being told ultra specifically through Corella's point of view and tells you so much about how she's feeling in any given scene just by the camera, which is mm-hmm. fantastic. And that's good filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. design was good. Ah, design was good. All right. So we're going back to the Maleficent design. Uh, not so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. I'll, I'll kick this <laughs> off and then I'm sure you're okay. going to going to go for it. <laughs> My weaknesses mostly surround the CGI and the visual effects. It's a very CGI and VFX-heavy film. It's a fantasy, and that often comes with the territory. Mm -hmm. Some of the effects are really impressive, but I think the oversaturation of them makes it all feel a little bit hollow. Yeah. My biggest complaint probably has to do with the creature designs. I couldn't agree with you more. The fact that all of the creatures are CGI does nothing in helping us believe that Maleficent is part of this real place. Yes, thank you. She sticks out like a sore thumb. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't make... She doesn't look like she comes from there at all. (laughs) I know. Additionally, the design of the creatures themselves all feel very disjointed. It's incredibly unclear what the rules are purposes, etc., cetera, oh are my God. for the creatures who live in this land. And they're being deemed important by the story. They're like, we have to save the moors. Like, the fairies are part of it. Like, they're important. So I just, I want to know why, what is the, what is their deal? Do they have magic powers? Are they responsible for any elemental properties in the world? How do we make them all feel like they all come from here because they don't look at it. I have a hard time reconciling the tree ant-like characters with the little frumpy cute goblins. Those frumpy guys are so annoying to me. Oh yeah. my gosh. But then we've got this floaty ribbony dragon serpent thing that flies I in know. the air and I'm just like 
How are you? I can't all keep it all straight. It's not all from the same world. I, you all don't make sense together. We could have benefited from some mythology of the Moors to help us care a little bit more about this, and then we would have you know more heartbreak when Maleficent goes dark and like lashes out at them. But I'm like, I just don't know what what they are. Like I'll I don't even it, know like, what their names are. That's the thing. The, the design of them. Felt like you said, they don't all feel like they're from the same world. I don't understand them, but some of them irritated me so much that obviously I don't want anything to happen to Maleficent's home. But otherwise, I was like, destroy the Moors. Who cares? <laughs> because it's like some, it's a little bit more. I watched Mistress of Evil, so there are some other creatures they introduce in that. But there's one, I think these smaller creatures were in Maleficent as well. They're so, they feel so Barbie fairytopia to me and so childish oh, yeah. that I'm like, sort of destroy like them. Destroy them. the river. Yeah. It doesn't, they, I'm like, I don't, like you said, I don't understand how Maleficent is from the same world as them. They're irritating. The little squatty trollish guys are so overly cutesy to me that I'm just like, they belong in a different movie. Yeah, when we've got like those really, really serious tree creatures right. who are kind of scary. I'm all for that angle. I love the them. Tree I'm like, they yes. work with Maleficent. They yes, have the same attitude. They're rougher. Yes. They're scary. You can yes. understand why the humans would be afraid of them. Mm-hmm. But then the other creatures, I'm like, you look cute. Yeah, that's the thing. Is like the childish cutesiness to me. I understand the story that we're trying to tell is that like the world that Maleficent comes from is actually very beautiful and the humans are going to destroy it. But it it felt odd to me. It was too childish, cutesy rainbow. No. It would have been really cool if everything, all the creatures enough, look kind of really scary or look really mm-hmm. weird. Yeah, but then are at the nighttime theme. are like really really beautiful. Like that's but that's the, the, the theme the of the movie. Yeah, that's the story we're trying to tell is that these things that we deem scary actually like you know are real you know p- cute creatures and we shouldn't disrespect them. Whatever. Yeah. No. 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 These little troll people. No. Again, in terms of creature rules for the Moors. How do we handle humanoids, especially fairies? I don't understand how the three that we have and Maleficent, they're all fairies, but only Maleficent gets to actually be played by Angelina Jolie. Like, I I don't get it. I don't understand where's the hierarchy of fairies if these are like, I don't I don't get it. No, for me, that that disjointed feeling that I feel in so much of this design, I would never normally call this out. But man, the sound mixing in this was driving me insane. I couldn't hear what people were saying. And then I got absolutely blasted during the battle scenes. And that just like, mm-hmm. along with my annoyance about how like the extremes of Stefan's character, it was the same thing where I'm like, you're f- actually making me feel frustrated watching this right now because I can't hear and then I'm getting blasted. Just a small thing, but it was frustrating. Interestingly, like, you know, I get what you're saying in that you thought that the references to the medieval things from the animated film were good. For me, I actually, I thought more fun could have been had in the overall look of this, either with really leaning into the medieval historically accurate costuming in the human world, which they kind of did, or I could have used, maybe not in Maleficent's costumes, but maybe in Aurora's, I could have used, again, either choosing to go even more fantastical when she's living in the Moors, or doing some really medieval send-ups of her costumes from the animated film. For me, one of the most exciting and my favorite parts of live-action remakes is seeing what they do with these iconic looks that we know so well. I really wanted to see Aurora in a color-changing gown 
or at least maybe a reimagined peasant dress because we love her forest peasant outfit from the animated we film. We love the Briar love Rose it. costume. And I wanted to see what does that Briar Rose costume look like in literal historically accurate medieval costuming. It would have been really interesting. And I don't think that they really went there with that. I also, I'm torn. I agree with what you said and that I really enjoyed the evolution of Maleficent's look, especially like you said, it's based off one outfit from the animated film. But for me, and this is going to go into a bit of my issue with the whole value as an origin story, a lot of things in this movie were rushed for me. And so I didn't 100% it is a 90-minute film. Yeah, it's quick. And there's just there's too much going on in this for it to be a 90-minute film. Like, it's it, nothing got enough time. But I'm like, so, okay. So she was dressing, again, akin to these tree creatures, dressing very inspired by nature. Sure, then she gets these terrible things happen to her and you're going to, the costuming is going to change. I get it. But I'm like, did she start making her own clothing and like, why the change from nature-inspired looks to then things that sort of look like they might have come from Hot Topic. Like, sure, she's going darker. She's changing. But she's someone who started off with very nature-inspired clothing. So I would have been okay if we continued with that feel of this Maleficent who is very tied to the land that she comes from. It felt strange I think to there me. is some natural elements, like, in the okay. hen wraps. Because, like, there's a lot of, like... Mm-hmm. Snake skin, alligator skin. Okay, yeah, there is a snake skin in the head wrap. Yeah, yeah. But I do see what you're saying in some of like the actual clothes that she wears. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Is that everything you got for design for Maleficent? Let's move on to Cruella. For Cruella, really, the only thing that stuck out to me strangely, (laughs) design wise, was the moment. At the climax of the film. The parachute? When she's on the parachute and she's... The parachute, yeah. (laughs) And she's in the the water. (laughs) It's so CGI. Oh, my God. The parachute moment made me and Gabby laugh, scream out loud. Like, we were cackling. But at the same time, I can kind of forgive that because... It is so campy. There's no. I was way gonna say it's so they... campy that it fits almost. Exactly. Yeah. She yeah. basically makes her. Skirt... It almost felt like an Isma moment. It, it, yes. Which yes. makes sense. Which they're very much in the same vein. So I'm like, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. I sure. very quickly forgave the parachute okay. moment. It just really bothered me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just wanted to say that there are some some parts of the design where when we do have CGI in the background that. It's not always the best quality of CGI. And I think it's because money was being spent elsewhere. Mm-hmm, I wouldn't mm-hmm, change mm-hmm. that, but I'm like, it does sort of stick out a little bit to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The quality of the origin story. I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Let's let's go in um into Maleficent. Let's let's talk about yeah. some of the strengths. I imagine that right. you probably don't have many. I've got a major one, and that's kind of all. <laughs> Great, great. So script-wise, I appreciate Linda Wolverton a lot. She knows a lot about how to write a good script. I don't always think that that happened as well as it could have here. But she does know what you must keep and what you can fuck with. And she knew from the get-go that she would keep the throne room scene almost word for word and it's so nice that she does because it's a really good grounding checkpoint for us. We need it in so badly movie. in this. Oof. We needed it. And she was a writer who's like, I know what people need. And she gave it to us. So I watched some of the special features, the featurettes of the movie. And in one of the featurettes, 
Wolverton was saying that one of the first questions she asked herself was, how could this character curse an innocent? Mm -hmm. And she kept going through versions of the story. And in the original text, Maleficent, the character, is described as a fairy. And then that was her light bulb moment where she asked herself, where are her wings? The other fairies have wings. And then she answered it with, they were taken. Hmm. And I think the storyline of Maleficent's wings being taken from her and that violation of love and trust is wholly believable as Maleficent's driving force for seeking revenge on Stefan. I believe it entirely. I think it was the best choice they could have made as a cornerstone origin story moment. Mm -hmm. And then I have a lot of respect for some of the smaller explanations of things that we have. So like some things from the original film, like, for example, her staff, where we don't need a big fancy explanation for it. Mm -hmm. Her wings got cut off. She She needed a walking walking. stick. She picked up a twig and that's how she got it. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that some of those things were like, how'd she get her staff? She was willing to answer some things very simply. Mm -hmm. Because I think so many people when they're writing an origin story get so caught up in every small detail Mm -hmm. that then it becomes a mess of details and not just what's important and what's not. It gives us a clear path for the wings to be like the big thing. And then back to Diaval, I think he's an interesting character. And again, there's a simple explanation as to why she needed him. She doesn't have wings. She needs him to be her wings. But then the added element of giving this character some humanity to him, I think that was a nice twist on the character of Diablo, who is literally the only character that Maleficent trusts in the original film. And now we have a character that she can riff off of when you have a character who is largely alone. I think it was a smart storytelling choice. And that's it. That's <laughs> that's what I got. I want to give this movie claps for just being pretty much the first of its kind. It's a difficult yeah. thing to do. It set the tone for origin stories that are more adult and dark and period specific. And that is definitely no small feat. And it's probably a little bit nerve wracking for Disney to try to do. I think the places where I felt like it could have gone deeper are just from the fact that Disney was in uncharted territory. And a lot of the cons that I'm going to talk about in a bit, like wishing the film was longer and more complex, just stem from the fact that this was the first of its kind. And so that I think that should carry a lot of weight because I really see so many places where Cruella was inspired by this movie and was like, oh, let's just improve yeah. upon that. Cruella owes a lot to this movie, and I, I think agree. that needs to be stated. Yeah. That's all I got. (laughs) Great. All right. Let's look at the origin story for Cruella. So like I said, a bit related to, very tied to why Emma Stone's performance is so great. I think this film struck the perfect balance of making Cruella do things that are pretty twisted while putting her in a story that makes those actions justified and something that we can latch on to and understand. And like I said, I think it set up a nice springboard depending on where we go with the character for Is she going to become the fully twisted out villain that we see in the animated film? Or are we going to like take our foot off the gas on that a little bit and make her much more relatable? I think it can go either way. And I think that's really smart. Also, I was surprised by the twists and turns in this story. It didn't feel predictable. And it also didn't feel overly twisted either. Like we're just trying to make this confusing for you so you can't figure it out. I thought it struck a nice balance. And I just love that this was full adult pg-13 stuff that's what maleficent was lacking and again it was their first shot at it so they went pg and i get it but for this 
There also just truly was no other choice for a character who in the animated film wants to skin puppies. So we we had to go there and I'm glad we didn't skimp on that. But also we did that without having to actually do any harm towards animals in the movie at all, which I think is amazing. This movie is great for animals. Mm -hmm. Like nothing bad happens to them. I have some questions to ask about where we're going to go from here because we're going to have a sequel. So I'm like, where do we go? How do we make it make sense? But- I, what I I think the main strength of this, too, is we got the perfect deepening of the characters that we already know. Maybe not so much Anita and Roger, but they didn't really matter as much. But the deepening and, and personalizing of Horace and Jasper is so iconic to me to the point where now if I go back and watch the animated film, I'm going to be looking at them and being like, oh, I really know what their deal is. Like, I really feel for them. I enjoy them. They're not just the random kind of annoying lackeys to me anymore. And I think that's so important. And then I could see these the way that these characters were portrayed, honestly, going back to animated versions. It just everything felt very grounded in the tone of the original animated movie. But then we also got these fantastic additional characters who I could see being transplanted into the world of the animated film as well. Um, But they didn't distract from the main story and the main trajectory that we are on, which is towards the events of 101 Dalmatians. They don't detract from it. They only add to it and add to the deepening of that world. And so I think that is the, that is what made this a wonderful origin story, which was deepening of who we already know and additions that don't distract from the main characters. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I noted specifically with Horace and Jasper, that this movie has a slightly more difficult task than Maleficent because it's not an origin story of one villain. Mm -hmm. It's an origin story of three villains, Cruella, Horace, and Jasper. And in the original film, they have a very delicate and abusive relationship with Mm -hmm. one another. Horace and Jasper are willing to do her dirty work, but they are disgruntled about it. They don't like doing it. They're willing to mouth off to her. She's willing to scream back at them but they're all still willing to like work together. And it's very interesting and you don't understand why until this movie comes in and gives you the answer as to mm-hmm. why. Mm-hmm. I think it's brilliant. I think the path that they found for them is perfect. Is It yes. strikes exactly the right balance. The Dalmatian relationship slash relationship to dogs in general, I think that's really interesting as well. We see her in the fake spotted coat and having like this muddled relationship to the dogs that are responsible for her mother's death. And I think the questions that are posed by these relationships with animals in the film leaves a lot of room for that additional sequel that's still set before the events of 101 Dalmatians. I know a lot of people are like, a sequel to Cruella, isn't that just 101 Dalmatians? Not necessarily. No, not necessarily. I don't think that's what we're going to get. I think we're going to essentially get another prequel, probably one that expands more on the relationships, maybe a falling out with Anita. Mm-hmm. That sort of thing. That's yes. that's where I'd probably put my money. Yes. I think one of the best things about this, and I sort of talk about this a little bit with Maleficent in why it's not working, is the narration. Mm-hmm. I'm a person who usually does not like narration in movies. I think it can be really, really yeah, I agree. cheap and uh, a way of just sort of throwing a lot of exposition at your audience without having to do any sort of the more complicated, subtle work of showing rather than telling. Um, But I think first-person narration can sometimes work really well. And I think in Cruella, it does. Because we are able to reconcile with Cruella being slightly sympathetic 
to her because the movie is being told from her twisted, compromised point of view. So we can still accept Cruella as this awful villain and be on her side because we're forced to. Mm -hmm. The story benefits from the choice not to make Cruella a hero, but rather claim that Cruella is inherently born bad and that her goodness or badness or madness is relative to the people and the environment around her. Mm -hmm. I think this film is at its core an anti-hero story for sure, because even when Cruella performs actions that are morally correct, the motivation behind them is still in her own self-interest, which is a difference to Maleficent, who she is not quite an anti-hero because her evil is actually an exception to the rule. And oftentimes her moral actions are truly selfless. I think Maleficent takes the argument and says she's neither good nor bad, or if anything, she's a hero. Where Cruella does not take that side. Cruella, we are getting that this character is bad. She has a level of badness that is biological almost to her that she will never be able to escape. And the journey is, when does that come out and when does it not? And then any sympathetic feelings we have are because we're just seeing it from her point of view. Mm -hmm. Okay. The weaknesses of the story for Maleficent. So this story is an origin story combined with a revision of the original Sleeping Beauty story. So it's definitively not a companion piece in the way that Cruella could be considered a companion piece. Instead, the film is taking a villain and, like I said, making the claim that she isn't bad and she isn't good. In fact, for one of the most evil villains in the Disney library, she's really only evil for like one, maybe two scenes in the entire movie. The other things we see are just valid justifications for her actions or general mischief, but there's a fair amount of good that she does and not because she benefits from it like an anti-hero would operate. We are to accept that she's inherently good until this one really, really bad thing happened. And the story completely flips the script on who is evil rather than letting us revel in Maleficent's wickedness. Mm -hmm. Stefan is the evil character in right. this, not Maleficent. And, you know, maybe this would be hard to do to, like, completely take the side of Maleficent with someone who would be willing to curse a baby. But TBH, I want to see more of the evil shit that Maleficent did prior to Sleeping Beauty. I Me didn't too. need this to tell the story of Sleeping Beauty. I yep. want to see her interactions with the three good fairies and their story. Yeah, We don't get that. No. Also, why did they change their names? I don't understand that. I Why did we do that? That's such a waste of time and energy. Uh, ridiculous. I, it, ridiculous. We don't, we don't need this. They're still Flora, Fauna, and Merriweather, but now you just they change their names be. and then messed them up a bit. You said their names before, and I was like, who? Like, I can't even remember their names. Well, I'm generally a fan of the plot point where Maleficent wants to revoke the curse and not being able to. Mm. It makes it so much harder to believe that this is the same villain that we know and love from the original exactly. movie. Exactly. So much of the story is Maleficent coming to regret actions made in moments of anger when the Maleficent we actually know and love is just all bad all the time. Evidently, 
from the featurettes that I watched, Angelina Jolie had some influence with Linda Wolverton over the script and had to keep reminding Linda Wolverton that she's a villain because I think the script was taking the side of Maleficent almost too much. Ultimately, I think we get a better balance of that, but I still think it would be more interesting if it was a little bit harder for us to love Maleficent in this movie. Yeah. And then, as I was talking about before, like Cruella, we get narration in this film. The difference is that it's being narrated by an unknown person later revealed to be a grown Aurora, which, like, made your eye roll when that reveal happened. I know. I I couldn't. I think in creating a villain story where we are arguing that the villain is a hero, this is acceptable to have someone else narrating like like this. Yeah. It's yeah. Cause it's a witness to the events recounting them, but I don't think that that's what this movie should be doing or what I think that they were hoping to do. I think they were hoping to make this argument that she's neither hero nor villain. But did we make that argument? No, because I don't think we did. She's the hero, really. Like, yeah, she's the I'm hero. like, what? <laughs> Honestly, she could have been able to do more bad things if Maleficent was our narrator, like Cruella, because it better lets the villain stay a villain while also being the protagonist of the film. It gives us an easier time accepting the original story that brought us here in the first mm-hmm. place and watching yeah. this. Yeah. Well, yes, I completely agree with what you're saying in terms of like the the theme of we can be both the hero and the villain. That's a decent enough theme for an origin story, even though it's extremely unoriginal, but fine. I honestly do not think anything Maleficent did was that evil. She was violently assaulted, and she's coming for the guy who did it to her in pretty much the only way that she can. But then she fixes it. That does not the Mistress of Evil make. I started watching Mistress of Evil, since it has that name, to see if we get more of an evolution of Maleficent into something sinister. No. She's the ultra villain. She has a reason to become super vengeful. So just go all out. That's the point. I wouldn't have minded some true villainy in this because it's totally justified. And I don't need villain origin stories to prove the villain was actually good. I just want to know how they became who they are, evil and all. Was she both the hero and the villain like the ending says? No. Like you said, no, not really. And and a lot of, again, I think some of this is because a lot of these plot points felt very rushed. This is not, we need... I'm going to draw a couple of parallels, unfortunately, but we need wicked level time to explore this kind of story. If we're going to make it be that she was completely misunderstood, you need more time. Some of the plot points that felt rushed to me were, honestly, Maleficent meeting Diaval and him suddenly becoming her minion. That happened in like one minute. It really did. Again, we didn't have time, but it's fast. Aurora waking from her slumber incredibly fast. And again, I get what you're saying. Now I see it in a different way in that it's not a companion piece. But I actually kind of missed that a little bit. And and I and I missed... I know everything can't be explained, like you said. It's just... I agree. I don't like when every single thing has to be explained. But I did miss the kingdom being put to sleep along with her. And I'll get to that in, in a minute. But maybe, like you said, maybe this all could have been saved if we just tried to tell the story of Maleficent without it leading into the events of Sleeping Beauty. Her origins plus the retelling of the story we know takes a lot of time and we didn't have it. And moments from Sleeping Beauty that were skipped over or changed, the things that were changed either felt pointless or made some moments feel like they were missing something. Like the fun of origin stories is filling in the gaps of the story we know. 
I'll keep referencing Wicked. I'm sorry, but Wicked is the gold standard of this. <laughs> but fine, I get it. We're, we're not doing a companion piece. But I don't know. If you change too many plot points and deviate so far from the events that actually happen, for me, some of the fun is gone. If you can't make a plot, a major plot point work, the solution isn't to just eliminate it for me. I mean, like you said, changing the fairies' names, total waste of effort. Silly. I miss the kingdom being put to sleep. And I guess this is because in this version, the three fairies are useless and not helpful, which leads me to my next point of the fairies in general were just total trash in this. They're the main characters of the original movie. Yes. I I enjoy the fairies in the original movie because their bickering and like dottiness are mixed with a genuine love for Aurora and the desire to protect her and to do the right thing. The stakes of this entire movie were lowered by the fact that the fairies were bickering, unlikable idiots. I know that we're supposed to really love Maleficent in this, but I think the story would be so much more compelling if they were a bit more of a match for Maleficent in terms of capability. Yeah. So this would just became silly and frustrating. Because the fairies do help thwart Maleficent to yeah. her death in the original yeah. movie. Yeah, right. Like, we have to have some kind of force to equalize this. Otherwise, there's no stakes. Flora enchants the blade so that it strikes Maleficent's heart. And that's exciting. That's some nice magic. (laughs) Yes. And everything that happened with Stefan. Like, there was nothing to like about this guy. And I don't find that very compelling. The story would have been so much more nuanced if he had been forced into a situation where he had no choice but to hurt Maleficent. As this would once again highlight the fact that people can be both hero and villain, good and evil. It would have been heartbreaking if he and Maleficent had more of a forbidden kind of love story going on. Rather than him just ending ending up being a selfish fuckboy. I would have loved love becoming more of the origin story for Maleficent. He was just overall hard to watch. Him becoming the source of evil in the story... It doesn't line up with the film at all. There's like no hint of that. And I get it. It's the backstory. It's everything we don't see. But it leaves, to me, lots of sloppy gaps. And him becoming the ultimate villain just feels very forced to me. And the deepening of the old characters plus the creating new ones didn't, it wasn't as successful as Cruella. Because like, okay, yeah, the character of Deval is super cool. Up until I rewatched this, I did not even remember that that was a thing. So he didn't stick with me. We didn't even get really one, we get all the, like, you know, the more creatures, I guess. But we didn't get a new character to pique our interest. I guess it's not necessary, but it worked so well in Cruella that I think this film might have benefited from that. So much of this film just didn't match up with the events of the animated film to the point that I get. The point is that stories get twisted as they get passed down. But I don't know, Aurora becoming Queen of the Moors was a little bit odd for me. And it pretty much just left her kingdom as this dark, awful place that just got kind of abandoned at the end of the film, which is not what happened. So you have to make some major things match up here. Oh, I I thought she's the queen of the Moors as well as the queen of the other place. That's exactly what I thought. Until you watch Mistress of Evil and it's like, no, she's like, no, we gave the castle to the people. So she just paced out and went to the moors and that was it. What? No. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, that makes no sense. Um, I love the Once Upon a Dream in the credits. But then when you really think about it, the theme and event of that song were nowhere to be found in this movie. So it kind of felt lazy. 
Like, what did that have to do with anything that happened in this movie? Nothing, really. It was a fun nod to the animated film that we're kind of leaving in the dust at this point. And she met Prince Philip once. Their meeting was so fast. And And it was not romantic, really, at all. It was so (laughs) awkward. It was like, no, not good. No. And so what did we gain from this origin story? Okay, I guess that things aren't as they appear. I would have preferred to focus on an aspect of the story that I found the most fascinating, which was Maleficent saying that true love does not exist after having her heart broken. If if Maleficent's story was about someone being burned by the idea of, of love, that would explain to me why she becomes the mistress of all evil. That's a major thing. Although true love's kiss coming from Maleficent, it's a nice idea. I disagree with what that review that you quoted before said. I think they did a way better job of that idea in Frozen, that love doesn't always have to be romantic love. It's better in Frozen. So I'm not sure what the point of it was in this. <laughs> and that's kind of all I have to say. Wow, she came for the New York Times as well. <sighs> um, Cruella, let's talk about the weaknesses in the origin story here. Okay. On a lighter note, I can't put my finger on why exactly, but I didn't love the way that Roger and Anita were incorporated into the story. I could have either eliminated them all together or they could have taken on a much more important role. Like she and Cruella have known each other for a while. We could have. Sure, she helps publicize Cruella. That's important. But for me, I could take or leave it. And then the end of this movie, like you said, I would like if the sequel doesn't go right into 101 Dalmatians. I'd like another prequel. Mm-hmm. But OK, so the the mid credit scene tying the movie in a little bit into the events of 101 Dalmatians, it didn't work for me. You're telling me that Pongo and Perdita are related and are going to go on and have puppies together? Ew. They're from the same litter. That is a huge flaw. Like, how did we okay this? It literally, factually, doesn't really make sense if you're going to try and tie it. Does that sometimes happen with dogs, though? I guess. (laughs) No. Come on. (laughs) Your brother and sister, and they're like, ooh, hottie alert. No, no. Like, ew. See, I liked the mid-credits scene because I came away with that being like, whoa. It it thickened the plot for me in that, like, when Cruella comes it intrigued for me. these puppies, it's even more than just to, like. She planted them there in bad. the first place. Like, she's willing to yeah. go that low. I do, however, like in Cruella that they embrace the backstory that Cruella is Anita's old schoolmate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I like I that Anita important. is this sort of like driven professional sort of thing. So I'm okay with Anita in this movie. I just want to see they need to promise that we get more of her they have in the to. next one. Yeah. The next one they has to. to be a falling out between Cruella and Anita. Mm-hmm. Cruella Which doing be something really so bad that Anita's like, I can't be a part of it. Or Cruella becoming yes. like an ultra criminal and Anita has to maybe turn and instead of being mm-hmm. a promoter, be like an investigative journalist. Interesting. And the two are at odds. I could, down, I'm, I'm down available. If they need ideas, I got it. them. I'm down with it. I think, and we've said this, but the film would have been great as an origin story that didn't try to lead directly into 101 Dalmatians in any way because that at some point is going to have to force us to tackle the puppy skinning thing. And this movie tried to explain it away by making it just a rumor that Cruella had turned the dog into a coat, but she really didn't. But then who is this Cruella going to be? She was practicing. 
yeah, like, who is this Cruella going to be if we get another movie? Because the story of 101 Dalmatians, and that's the fact that that's what she does, you can't change it. So even though I loved that we found a way around it, because that was my main concern when I heard they were making an origin story of Cruella, you can't go that way forever. Um, All of that aside, my one other complaint is just something that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. The origin of the Baroness's villainy and evil nature is very closely tied to the fact that she doesn't want to have a child. I am obviously not advocating for killing your newborns. That isn't wanting to do that is evil. Yes. But she expresses to Estella in the film that she hates to see women who have unlived dreams just sitting in a drawer, unlived. And that's a very valid reason for a woman not to want children. So then when John tells the story later, yes, he's not making a direct connection, but There is a connection between the Baroness's dismay at being pregnant with the fact that she's a narcissistic person, and I have a huge problem with that connection. Ooh, it's actually making me really angry right now because it's such a cornerstone of why she's the ultimate bad guy, and it is okay for women not to want to have children. That's very interesting because I had a sort of different perspective of her villainy I sort of always assumed that she was always a narcissist and always bad and like evil and Mm -hmm. that she just didn't want to have this kid and not wanting to have the baby slash killing the baby was just like another evil thing that she's probably done in her life Mm -hmm. as opposed to this is the thing that sort of triggers her, her villainy. But that's an interesting perspective. It's There still is a link. It's muddied the waters in a way that is not helpful. It leaves the door open for people to perceive a lot of different things from it. It's just many like... Many of which that I think are not good. What you said is true in that, like, she's always a villain. She's always been this bad person. But then when you specifically show her finding out she's pregnant and being upset, that's a real thing that happens to women. So it's not okay to just blend that into the story of this is what evil people do. Evil people are upset when they're pregnant. No, that is not okay. So that's that scene specifically is what made me go, oh, God, that's what was bothering me. I think I never equated the two together of, like, she doesn't want to have the baby because she's evil. I think I interpreted, like, she wants to kill the baby because she's evil. Right. So that's why I wish they had left out the scene of her being upset of her being pregnant. Because if we only saw the fact that she had the baby and wanted to kill it, I'd be, like, evil. See, I always take into account her villainy is the fact that she has killed many, 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 many people, it seems, from the way that mm-hmm. she yeah. talks to Cruella, where she's like, you need to be more specific about who you who right. killed, because I've killed a lot of people. Right. But mm-hmm. I still see I still see what you're saying. I'm not trying to discount what you're saying. No, I don't think so either. Feeling. I just, what I want to remember is like that things like that, those like subconscious things, like kids take that in. Yeah, people kids absorb latch that. onto it. Yep. And they they just put it into this all the same category and it's not. So that's the only yeah. reason why. I think it's subconscious things. You got to be careful. Um. I don't really have a whole lot of notes about the <laughs> weaknesses of the origin story. I really bought very much into it. I was pleased with it. Mm-hmm. And I really want to see more of the buildup to the climax of the original film. I want to see how we get to those places. And I don't mind sitting in this prequel 
land for longer. Mm-hmm. I'm excited okay, for what's ahead. Yes. But I was very pleased with this with this story. So I think it's pretty obvious uh, <laughs> in a way that hasn't been in the last couple of showdowns. Yeah. Uh, we're very Team Cruella here. Mm-hmm. Cruella is our winner of this showdown. Maleficent did put up a good fight. Maleficent yeah. was the first, mm-hmm. was a trailblazer. Yeah. When I first saw it, I really loved it. Yeah. When I first saw it. <laughs> yeah. And I think Cruella has just elevated this genre into Which is so great. Something so exciting. new. Yeah. And yeah. I'm interested to see who's going to try and dethrone Cruella next. So I know. Oh, my yeah. God. Maybe we'll get, we'll finally get our Ursula story. Oh, my God. Oh my God. We will come <sighs> alive. Wow. We will. We really will. <laughs> All right. So that's going to do it for us for this episode. Thank you so much for bearing with us and listening to this. I know this was a hefty one. <laughs> If you liked what you heard, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this podcast, especially those ratings and reviews. They do a lot for us to get us out there, to entice other people to come take a listen to it, and to make sure that people see us when they're looking for their next favorite podcast. So thank you in advance for that. And please come and follow us on social media. We are at Poor Unfortunate Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, and we are at Unfortunate Pod on Twitter. And we would love for you to join our private Facebook group, The Poor Unfortunate Fam, where we can connect more personally with our listeners and y'all can interact with each other, discuss the episodes, discuss Disney news. We would love to welcome you there as well. And if you have any questions for us or any suggestions on future episodes, or if you're just not on social media, feel free to email us at poorunfortunatepodcast at gmail.com. And then the last thing that I'll say is that it does take us a little bit of money to keep the podcast up and running and coming to you. And we do have a PayPal account where we are accepting donations. It is linked in the episode description below, and it's also in any of the website links on our social media accounts You can make any donation in any amount that you would like. You can make $5, $10, $50. You can make it monthly. You can make it just a one-time donation. Any and everything that you are able to give just goes right back into this show. And I just thank you very much for considering it. Okie dokie. That's it. We did it. Until next time. Beluga Beluga Savruga. Savruga.